0: Welcome to another Radio Level 5 podcast. Today we're here with David Bernstein. um, And we, that is Olaf Winkler and me, Buzz Blasen. Welcome, David. Thank you. Um, And um, to start first, uh, obviously, I had a look at your website to get get to know you a little bit better, or at least also um, see what you have done so far. And I noticed your website was called Yes, Yes, David. And I thought that was interesting. And I just wanted to know quickly um, what that was about. That's funny.
1: Yeah. um, I made the website maybe 10 years ago or maybe a little bit more. And um, David Bernstein is a really common name, especially in the United States and New York. And it's like a very typical Jewish name. So... DavidBernstein.com was taken. My email address was taken. Like, everything's taken for David Bernstein. So then I thought, well, well, what else to call my website? And at the time, with a few friends, we had this idea of creating a collective called the Yes Yes Collective, which was sort of playing on French oui oui and sort of like positive uh, perspective. So that's why I named it Yes Yes David. So it felt like something you could easily remember.
2: And did you ever play
1: with it? then, actually, in your artworks or so, was there
2: something like a? No, never. <laughs> so it's
1: really like weird. And I don't. I don't really think about it. So it's funny that you brought it up because I just. I totally forgot that my website is called Yes Yes David. I'm. I'm always wondering what how it other people react to it, but like, I mean, some people say hello, yes yes David, how are you or something like this in an email or as a joke or something. But like. I don't know. I never really think about it anymore. Yeah. Well, if we
2: stick to your website, which is really nice to, to actually, it's a starting point, because the interesting thing is that sometimes we do interviews with somebody who we would say he or she is a painter, or he or she is a sculptor, or filmmaker, or whatever. We had these discussions with Chloe, for example, uh, if she's a filmmaker or an artist making film, mm-hmm. etc. You have an incredibly broad range of disciplines which you are bringing together in your work and on the website you have different kinds of films, but they are not films as films, they are more like films of presentations or performances or whatever. How would you describe your... do, Do you think in disciplines or how does this work? How do you describe your own
1: work? I mean, you have to be able to answer this question when people want to know in a quick... Sorry. ...quick second, <laughs> like in the elevator pitch, as we learned when I was a student. I studied industrial design before, so we had this training on, like, business training a little bit. Mm. Like, you have to be able to pitch yourself in the in the distance between two stops on an elevator. So uh, I would say I make sculptures and I do performances. That's, like, the most baseline. And... Uh, And i tell stories i tell stories using the sculptures so i activate them in some way but that that description doesn't really tell the full story either because i draw a lot and um, when what i mean when i say performance is also very broad it's not that i only tell stories with objects i also made a sauna in a car so that what is that a performance is that a sculpture is that a functional thing it's a wellness space but it, you know you also have a kind of reflective uh, thought on it so i think it, it changes it from being just a functional object so i don't know it's hard to to know how to d- define myself some recently i thought i feel like a, the jack you know like in the deck of cards the jack yeah. and the jack is sort of like the joker in a way in, in many games of Uh, card games the jack is the one that's the wild card that's unexpected and the jack is also like royal but the lowest royal and the jack um, is also the jack of all trades which is the person who does a little bit of everything so sometimes I feel like I'm the jack in the arts my English is rather limited
2: probably in comparison to an American but then I have to think of jack in the box because sometimes it thinks that was a popping art Um, yeah but it's actually, the the funny thing is that the work that I know from you, is, it's always totally convincing that it is done that way. Hmm. I mean, it's not that you are standing in front of it and say, oh, "Is this no painting? Is this no sculpture? What, what does it want to be?" This so sauna in a, I think it's a Fiat Multipla, one of the strangest cars ever made. Um, I only, I never saw it in real life, so to speak, but I saw the. the films and photos of it and so on and it's totally convincing that also that this car has been changed into something and uh, uh, which is super interesting is exactly that you're balancing on a, on a small or yeah, in, in a small area between performance and entering daily routines or
1: so mm-hmm. is
2: that something that you think about the daily
1: for sure yeah very much so i think that so as I said, I studied industrial design before I did art, and I think that set a foundation for thinking about things in the world in relation to our everyday lives and to our use of things. So I'm, if I'm thinking about an artwork, I'm often thinking about a kind of use value. I think that all artworks, I mean, I think that all experience of art is a kind of performance. So um, if you go to look at a painting, you're performing the act of looking at the painting and the painting is performing being an object in a space hanging on a wall. And then there's many ways that you can play with that situation. So with the um I don't know, with the sauna as an example, you can go to the sauna, but um yeah, the car has a story behind it. It's part of a kind of saga. But like I don't know I want to come back to this uh, question that you asked and, and I'm trying to think like from the core like uh, a friend of mine Geraldine Longville she, she once said to me like when you think about your work maybe it's best to just think in the most simplistic terms what what do you do so like I, I was like well or like what do you care about and I was thinking like I really like things and I like stories and I feel like when we tell stories with each other that's kind of the point of being in the world, or to make a kind of meaning out of the out of, uh, everyday as well. So, if, so I come from design, so I have this object basis, and um, I think that is tying together most of the things that I do, that I think about things as objects. So like, to come back to the painting, like I can never see a painting as just a rectangle floating in an abstract universe. For me, a painting is always a physical thing. So when I make a painting like this one there on the wall, it's really I want to emphasize that it's an object. So that's why I make it a bit thicker out of wood. I put a magnet in the back so I can just pull it off the wall in one second and hand it to you and you can hold it. So that there's like a relationship to the hand that's also really present in a lot of the things I do. We go back to the sauna again, the the sauna is a much larger space, but it still relates to the hand, to the body. But it's something maybe a little bit different than my usual practice. I'm usually focused on things relating to the size of the hand. Maybe a little bit bigger, the size of a chair.
2: Yeah, because the the sauna... um is really playing on a daily or not so daily because well, everybody's using a sauna all the time, but then in general, not an artistic kind of routine where painting is. So you're playing with both, and the interesting thing is that you treat them almost the same, even though, I mean, the delicate procedure at the moment might be different. So so that's, that's quite fascinating. <laughs> I think you wanted to ask something about
0: well, that. Yeah, what I like about what you just mentioned is how you, you see art objects as something material, as something like an object. At the same time, I think a lot of what I see, what you have done, and also what you told me a little bit about uh, a performance you're gonna do, which we're gonna talk about probably later on as well, is that there is um, there's a narrative side, obviously, And that's also somehow sort of a spiritual side. So even though you say the painting is something you want to emphasize to be very material and um, and be present as an object, it has this spiritual dimension as well.
1: Yeah, for me, objects are, are very spiritual in general, especially objects of art they're always somehow more profound than just a, a fork although a fork could become profound even, even though you use
0: also um, very profane like everyday objects in your
1: in your work as well yeah like i have this whole collection of spatulas yeah i just brought one actually i just bought it on the internet uh, just the other day i had it here behind this chair it's like a spatula that somehow is blending a spoon and a spatula together, and I thought it's kind of funny. So
0: how did that start? Because that's, as you say, mm-hmm. art objects are maybe something different than everyday objects, um, everyday life objects we use. Um, so what's, how did that start, and is there a difference between your maybe more art-oriented practice? Well, the, the
1: spatulas begin when I'm uh, When I moved to Netherlands to study masters at Sandberg Institute, I was already making work that was, um, let's see, how do I explain it? I was making work where I wasn't making objects. I got freaked out after studying industrial design about the production of things, because when you start thinking about ecology and uh, responsibility of mass production, it's like I don't know, it seems insane to make more stuff, to make another soap bottle or something. So I stopped making things and I was just moving things around in a practice that I was calling object conversations or studio conversations and this practice then led me to look at uh, object relations theory in psychology and someone gave me a book of Donald Winnicott who's um, an important psychologist and therapist in the 20th century and he was creating a lot of practice using games and things as in his psychology practice and then as I was reading him I, I learned of a game called the spatula game and my mind immediately just started to run because like it seemed so silly to me to make a game with spatulas but when he used the word spatula he's referring to this kind of stick that doctors have to hold on your tongue. Because in British... To scrape some, like... Yeah, also, you can see it if to scrape, like, uh, these, like, little wooden sticks that have round on both ends. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Where yeah. you have to say, ah. Uh, Where you have to say, ah, yeah, and yeah, they yeah, hold yeah, down exactly. your tongue. So, uh, he was familiar with this in the medical field, and he had some version of that that was shiny, and he would put it on the desk, and when a child would enter the room... Um, he would just not say anything to the child, he would maybe talk to the parent and he would just watch the child play with the spatula and notice the patterns of the things that they would do and notice when they start to see it becoming something else. Becoming like an airplane for example. I I use this example because I read it in uh, description of the game. Like, a kid is playing with the spatula, imagining it suddenly flying through the air and I love this idea of the thing becoming anything. So If we go to narrative, suddenly that child has put a narrative onto a thing that doesn't have that narrative, and they've opened up a world of possibilities of that object. And I and I start to do the same then with the spatula. Although when I hear the word spatula, I think of this thing you flip hamburgers with, because that's when from an American context that's like the immediate association with spatula, and it has a lot to do with pop culture and like postmodern humor wacky humor like uh spongebob squarepants he has like a collection of spatulas and he works frying hamburgers and so there's even like video games the search for the golden spatula with spongebob and uh, weird al Yankovic, he famous musician who does p- parody songs and, and humor and he made a film in which he makes a fake commercial for a place called spatula city that only sells spatulas So it was already in the culture that spatula is a kind of banal, funny object, and maybe it's because it's like, also you can spank with it. I don't know. It's something about this object that is both exceptional and very mundane. And so when I read about this in the psychology uh, game, I was really excited. I thought, oh, wow, how can I play with the spatula? And I start to imagine it stretching, flipping in different ways formally, like, there's these holes in the, in the spatula. So like maybe I can make the, something go through these holes. So I took a metal spatula and I took sticks of wood and I, I slid them through the, through the holes of the spatula, sort of expanding them. And then after that, after I made that, that sculpture, I, I saw a chair broken on the street and the backrest of the chair was uh, sitting there and I saw that and I was like oh wow that's that's the same as a spatula it was like these vertical lines of wood so it had these same vertical holes in between the lines and without the rest of the chair it was just this flat thing and so then I, I got huge pieces of wood and I pushed them through the back of the chair doing the same thing that I did with the small spatula and the small pieces of wood and I realized that I would never have made that sculpture if I hadn't first made that sculpture in the smaller form at the spatula. So it's like I start to to see the possibilities expanding through the other thing that already existed. And uh, this, with the friend Jurgis Pashkevicius, we we came up with this idea we called thinking. And thinking, a few people have used this term more recently, but. I think also some important philo- philosophers have created uh, philosophies where they use it, but for they different reason. They appropriate your Well, uh, they didn't, well, they didn't appropriate, it. it's just a thing in the air. You right. Know? But um, in fact, a few times uh, I was invited for exhibitions almost because they want to use this title for the title of their show or their series. I don't think that's the, the reason, full reason, but like... For sure, people are thinking about, oh, that's, that's a nice name. Yeah. So we wrote a text about thinking, looking, like, what can this mean? What is this practice of making things? And then those things sort of act because they, they allow you to see other things differently. So, like, with the kid who picks up this thing and sees an airplane, once they see an airplane, they can now navigate through their invented reality as an airplane. So, like, if there's other objects around, those those objects enter into that reality of the airplane. So they can suddenly fly through the chair, and the chair is, like, some monumental structure in this airplane universe. But the chair would never be that monumental structure if the child hadn't first seen seen it as an airplane. So, like, that practice became really fundamental for me in thinking about how to relate to things and how, like, things are performing also that they're... Influencing how we see the world and how we can come up with new ideas So, yeah, so I it's mean very much yeah.
0: vice versa um, How they influence you and how you sort of project stories onto onto objects and then so if in this process of um, Sort of allocating stories or f- finding material ground for stories um I'm not sure though if that's the, the right chronology, maybe it's rather the other way around. You have objects and then you put stories on them. Are these um, your stories, your interpretations, or do you also use other existing uh, stories, interpretations, facts um, to create new, new things?
1: All of the above. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, I've I've been asked often this, like, what came first, the story or the object? Right. So, like, okay, I know I'm, like, talking so much, and I'm going on this, like, crazy monologues and and ranting almost. That's the purpose of this interview. Well, (laughs) like, uh, what I described about the spatula is more abstract, but it links to the creation of narrative. Like, you you can think of narrative in a lot of different ways, but... um, when it makes a step from a kind of abstract narrative to then like story narrative, like um, this person who did this thing in this place, I think that, that jump is based on that foundation, but it's different. And I think like that happened when I was doing studio visits and I would describe things in the objects and talk to people. And I realized like the story that I was telling them, which could involve something that happened to me in a way that it made me think about this thing. I realized that that narrative I was telling was was affecting how they were seeing the thing. And then I was like, wow, this is amazing power that I have, actually. It's like I'm a magician. I can ask you to imagine that uh, part of the object is painted white, and it's not white. But I, if I asked you to imagine it white, we can all kind of imagine and see something that doesn't exist in reality, superimposed onto the reality. And that's like, uh, you're a sorcerer then. It's so amazing, the potential of just of just speaking a little bit with something, you change it completely. So you can also create fiction that you then place into the object, especially if the object looks familiar, but you don't really understand what it is. So I'm definitely attracted to things that look like things we know, but then somehow not, because in that space, there's so much potential to to invent and to play. So like, to answer your question, it happens in both both directions. That I have a story and then I see a thing and I see that story in that thing. Or I have a thing and a thing that makes me think about a story. And it goes back and forth. It's like, okay, I have this thing. I start to write a story for it. And then I think, oh, wait, I can actually change this thing. I can make a cut into it or I can draw on it or I can change some color. And then that's going to r- emphasize the story more. So there's ways that kind of they start to blend into each other. But then maybe a few years later, I come back to that same thing and I think, I want to tell a completely different story with that same object. And and I can still do that because there's infinite stories that we can tell for the things around us. But the, the stories are often coming from experiences that I've had in my life or stories that I've read or other people's personal experiences. So I had uh, a work called uh, Even If It's Not True, It's Well Found. And this series was based a lot on asking other people, what do you see in this thing? What does it remind you of? And then based on what they would say, we would have a whole conversation to understand how they relate to that association, where it comes from, their own personal memories. And then all of that information I could use to write a short story that either they would perform or i would perform to tell the story to a visitor so maybe it's uh yeah go ahead
2: yeah i'm I'm just uh, i'm not 100 sure if i'm already ready to ask what i'm trying to ask but um (laughs) because this is what for me is very interesting is that you take uh, objects which have a meaning and a, a function and by deconstructing uh, deconstructing meaning, function, and object a tiny bit, this is when these these uh, spaces start to exist in which a narrative can grow or you can just throw the seeds in there and so on. And I was just thinking about um, some experiences that I had with language because I was I used to live in the States for a year, As a, I was 16, 17 at the time, and for me it was the first time living in another country in another language most of all. And it was very, very funny that, for example, in the American school, you were not allowed to say God at least not when you were, I mean, like talking in a bad way, but uh, you could, of course, pray to to God, but you could not say something which was really bad and then use the word God. But you could say gosh and uh, you could not say damn, but darn. And if I remember it right, it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that from having uh, having grown up with another language, For me, these two words are essentially the same. So they only work as a bad word, as a good word, because they know these conventions. And um, this deconstruction or or just finding that words can mean something entirely different was really, really strange. And I was bullied by a guy, and he got really on my nerves. And then some other one said that I should say one word to him. And I said this word, and I don't know what it meant. And I said it, and he never, ever bullied me again, not in my entire rest of this year, and I don't really know what happened at the moment. um, I didn't know the meaning, but I just used it, and that's the same thing, you just take an object and you use it, you you take the meaning away for a moment or for longer, and you play with it, and uh, with this long, long story that I'm not talking about, is actually the question that I'm running to is, um, how much is the encountering of other cultures, living in Europe now, but also because I know that you play with sometimes objects that come clearly from another culture Uh, how important is this for you how much does it open up these possibilities
1: this is really important for me because i'm really interested in language as well and uh, i love to play with words and i love when we misunderstand words and how those misunderstandings lead us in new directions so if we don't focus it on it being an error but actually see it as a an opportunity to to rethink the the words and and the situation, it's really liberating. And when I was at Sandberg was really the time when I discovered this, especially Mm -hmm. together with these two people I mentioned before, Geraldine Longueville and Jurgis Poshkevichis. Geraldine's from France and Jurgis is from Lithuania. And so for them, English is also not their first language, but we formed a collective and our collective was based a lot in wordplay. And they each had their unique way of, of mutating the language, which was very inspiring, and also opened me up to, to mutate my own language. And I was learning Dutch at the time, so I was also seeing my language from a distance and also playing with Dutch words. So like later, I, uh, not in this collective, but later on, I created the character Slim Denken, which is my alter ego as a cosmic cowboy. And slim Denken" in Dutch means smart thinking. But it also has this Texas sound, like slim, and denken, and it's a like, bit like Duncan, which is maybe a common name. So, that uh, Cosmic Cowboy organization is called Self-Luminous Society, and it, that's a kind of new collective that, um, together with Juan Pablo Plazas, um, Mariana Tannussen and Bernice Nauta, we, four of us are this cosmic cowboy collective that are based completely around wordplay as a kind of foundation for our group. And it's, it's like a total joy as a daily practice to just be playing with words. I, I just was thinking this morning about... I, don't, I saw the logo for our group, self Luminous Society, and, um, and then I realized that Brussels can also be Brusself. A really stupid thing, but I don't know. These kind of moments are happening every day where I'm like, oh, brass self. What is a brass self? Or sometimes um, my girlfriend will say something, but then she'll write an email, and then the way that she's misspelled something is really very interesting. And or, you know, like, I don't know, without realizing she's like invented a new term.
2: Yeah, because it really, sometimes it's, it gets another poetic uh, layer to it and um, I I remember when I was like 18, no, 20 or so, I just started my studies, I was going to this group, we were like exchanging literature and writings and poems and and so on and there was this guy from Persia who wrote in German and his German was not good, so these poems were really beautiful and then the question was, are these poems allowed to be considered beautiful because actually they just came out of a mistake, so to speak, I mean, how much consciousness is needed. And uh, that brings me back to these objects, because you also, you, you open them up, but you don't close them. You, you don't control them, right?
1: Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I would say I'm controlling them by inventing new meanings for them. That's yeah. also kind of, cl- it's opening and closing them. Yeah. It's opening them by saying the meaning that you thought it had is not the only meaning. But that doesn't mean that I'm, like... I mean, in one way, I'm saying, like, any. It, there can be any meaning for this thing, but I'm giving you a specific okay. meaning. So that that is also a form of closing. Because I, I'm I'm kind of against this cliche when artists um, say that they want the work to be open, they want the viewer to bring their own interpretation to it. Sometimes I, I get it, it makes sense, but often I think it's a kind of, like, way to deny... Um, giving something that that is uh, your reason for why you do the things that you do and i think that generosity is important especially for people who haven't been trained in in um, looking at a lot of art that if you say you can play with this if you say you can see it and i'm going to show you a way that you can play with it perhaps that opens up a feeling that they can play too with it like I mean, I think children are really good at playing without needing any instruction or anything because they, they haven't been conditioned to think that there should be the correct way to see something. So if they see a portrait of a, of a man or a woman, and uh, it's like a classical portrait, they're like, oh, this is a portrait of a person who has no legs. This is what a friend uh, said, her nephew said. And I thought, wow, it's so radical. You know, like, who is thinking that, that this person has no legs? But, if you decide to see the frame of the the image as uh, uh, like as everything that it is, then yeah, is yeah, a person without it. legs. so like if I go to the museum with my grandmother, she was like, "What does this mean?" <laughs> you know that's so fundamental that people want to understand something. They don't want to feel lost because it's not a good feeling, it's very often very alienating unless you have a really strong sense of like I know what I'm gonna see and that's, that's like I'm happy to just uh, take control of that moment of viewing, you can often feel lost. So yeah, I want to play with that and to really open up a moment of looking too. Because I think that when you start to tell stories or describe details in something, people really end up looking much more deeply than they, than they look normally.
0: So maybe we could uh, start going to the objects, or uh,
1: sure, yeah.
0: You uh, just before we started the interview, you uh, unpacked this uh, this frame and you talked a little bit about it. But uh, maybe for the sake of the 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 podcast, you can describe a little bit what we see and what it is.
1: Sure. So this is a work. It's a collaboration with Junsheng Zhou or Zhou Junsheng, depending on how you want to say his name. So we did this collaboration three years ago, and uh, it's called uh, Buddha Inside and Out. And it's a large vertical frame with a plexiglass that's been laser cut with holes in it. And in the middle, you have a hole like radiating that looks like kind of when you're at a ticket counter and you're going to speak to the representative, this little star pattern that you you talk through. And that's located right on uh, an image behind it that's a kind of white blob. I mean, you can't see it's white so easily because it's a, printed on a, a gold um, paper. But um, the the image is what actually attracted me originally, and that's the thing that I really focus on um, to, to explain, because um, this work will be shown at a performance that I will be doing at artist club Coffrefort here in Brussels. Hopefully in the new year, maybe at the end of January, let's see how it goes with Corona. But um, that performance, it's called "I and I." It has three chapters, and the third chapter is in, um, is in a tea house. And this work is hanging on the wall in the tea house. And so I welcome the few guests who are part of the performance in the tea house, serve some tea, and then I, I start to tell stories about different things in the room. So this is the first thing I talk about. And and I say like so when we first met in his studio, I saw this hanging on the wall and I asked him what it was, what this kind of abstract blob is. Do you have any idea what it is?
0: No, I had a look at it before and uh
2: It looks a bit like um <coughs> like a Kete Kolwitz which lost its shape or something. So it's uh like What is a, that? Kate Kollwitz is a sculptor, a German sculptor. She made this very known, these uh, weeping parents. It's, uh, I think, it exists three times or even more. There's one church in Cologne which is entirely ruined, and in the middle it's standing. And there's another famous place. Anyway, so it's um, it it looks like or it could be Oscar Rodin or whatever, but it looks like a rather compact sculpture which has lost its surfaced through weather, wind or storm. Yeah, it's true.
0: It looks somehow a little bit fluid and then it froze again in a sort of new identifiable shape or something. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit of these... um, this is comic series. I don't know how they,
2: how they were called. Papa. Oh, Barba
1: Papa. I love Barbara. Barba. Yeah. Barba. Talk about shapeshifters. Yeah, what a, exactly. What an amazing co- uh, story yeah. and comic. And then it
2: has a bit of the Eau Noir by Marcel yeah. Duchamp, Duchamp, which is also this Buddha, this Buddha discussion later on. That well, that's probably
0: also the perspective up. of the photograph and how it's taken. I'm not sure.
1: There's an object. I'm going to just grab it. Sorry for the noise. There's an object that goes with with this frame. So I think it's important. So this will be, I guess, on a shelf next to it. You it see is, it? Yeah,
2: it's like a tiny version of it. It's the like shape a, connected to it, but it's much more pointy, much more... Yeah, it's a small like a wooden sharp, object, a
1: little bit smaller than a hand, and with a point. Some people see it looking like a thorn, for example. Hmm. So um, so basically, Jun Sheng he went to a museum, and he saw this object, and he took a picture of it, and it's a plaster cast for making a bronze buddha. Oh, okay. The so outside? Yeah, this is the outside. This is the mold. And uh, it's using the lost wax method. So inside of this cast is the metal buddha, and then you would normally crack this with a hammer and break apart the mold and, and reveal the, the buddha. Every time you mold with lost wax method, you, you lose the mold. You have to make a new mold each time. And this this one's from the 19th century, and it was never broken. So inside of this mold is is a metal Buddha that no one has ever seen before. And uh, he was explaining this to me, and I thought it was really beautiful. I mean, I love this idea of this thing that's the real thing is inside of it, but no one will ever see it. And that what it's become now is this really abstract form where we start to project other things onto it like we spoke about before. And then I asked him to explain it, and for him, he was interested in like the question of where is the true Buddha? how do I make a, a image or how do I show the the truth of Buddha and he works a lot with photography and he's interested in in language and about the meaning of photography, the meaning of the word ph- photography in in Chinese and um, I can't remember exactly I would need to to ask him but the meaning of the word photography has something to do with a kind of distance or absence, like showing the shadow of something. So it's always a kind of fakeness of the, of the real thing. And he was feeling like this object is also doing that with the Buddha. It's not the Buddha, but then perhaps by showing the absence of the actual thing and the photo as a tautological doubling of that action, He's actually showing the true Buddha, because anyway, a statue of Buddha is not the true Buddha. Where is the truth of the Buddha lying? And as he was telling me this, I was really like amazed because just a week before, I had uh, met him. I had made this wooden object that I'm showing to you, and I said I made this object. And I showed him a picture on my phone. I said this actually is the inside of Buddha. I bought a wooden Buddha at the market and I decided to carve carve it away towards a kind of abstract inner core. So you're showing me the outside of Buddha and I'm showing you the inside of Buddha. So we're both approaching this but from two different directions. And not knowing
2: of each other because you did this before.
1: Yeah, And so this sort of started a friendship and conversation where we would share a lot of interesting things relating to Buddhism and to these kind of abstractions as well. So yeah, so in the performance then I I talk about other objects that relate to this, other stories of things between inside and outside. And And basically
0: they are are like outlines Mm. in different ways
1: Mm.
0: to create this idea, like almost a platonic idea or something, Mm. of what Buddha and then the real is not something we can touch, it's not something physical, it's created by the things we see but then only the idea of it we have
1: Mm. in Buddhism it's it's interesting because it's super contradictory you have um, the idea of non-materialism everything being an illusion so we should not be focused on things and at the same time to make things, to make a, a wooden Buddha or a bronze Buddha is a kind of act of devotion that will uh, gain you merit, which will allow you to reach a a better life in your next life and eventually, um, as a bodhisattva, become a Buddha to leave this cycle of rebirth. So there's a weird contradiction of preaching non-materialism but also fetishizing materialism and the whole community coming together to donate all their money to build a gigantic metal Buddha. And, And in Buddhism, people often see these objects as also being alive so they're not just a thing they're actually containing the soul of buddha or the spirit of buddha in them but then there's been sometimes in history iconoclasts who challenged this although they're rare who said uh, uh, for example there's a story of a monk who is burning a wooden buddha and another monk comes by and says what are you doing how can you be burning this Buddha? And he said, "I'm I'm trying to get the the essence of the Buddha out of it." And the guy says, "But you won't get the essence of the Buddha out of it by burning it." And and then the guy replies, "Well, then maybe there's no essence of Buddha in it." So it, um, I think that these stories also link to what's happening in this work, and. Um, I mean, um, I don't know how to, to, to expand upon it, but it's like, this is one element within a story that I'm telling. And in this performance, I'm, I'm seeing the performance like an exhibition. It's a collection of different works and I'm leading you through the exhibition by telling stories that, that link them to each other and build to a, a larger narrative that asks these broader questions from different perspectives.
2: It, what is really fascinating is that when you talk about these things, and we did like a tiny interview four weeks ago or so here and when I just like attacked you more or less and it was only ten minutes, it was about other works, and um, every time you, you talk about your work it's it's possible to, also for the listener or the viewer, to directly expand on these topics, so I have a lot of ideas of this. but. Because I was thinking about uh, the topic of burning objects more in general and also objects which are by convention full of meaning, so to speak, and you being raised in America as a country which is more than probably any other country in the world, very sensitive when it comes to burning the flag, for example, Mm. and all these things. So what does really happen when you burn something which, a bit re-referring to this matter of words and what the words mean, um, what happens to the meaning if you burn an object which only bears this meaning because somebody put it on it, so it could go very fast. But um, maybe to keep it closer to the imagination, um, what is really happening, what else are you showing in the, in 4, what are you going to show there well, to, 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 to see more of these kind of perspectives, how yeah. you approach things?
1: Yeah, yeah. so the, the first chapter will be outside. And they have this little window display box that's on the street level. And uh, that's where I'll be showing this sculpture here in, in wood, in oak wood. It's um, a copy in miniature of a public sculpture by Mark Munders. And um, the, the sculpture has two figures who look almost identical standing on a table. And behind them is a chair and in front of them is two intersecting buckets. So this will be in this window display box. And the first chapter will, will be completely about this sculpture and the story that I tell.
2: And this sc- chapter always means that you are standing there with a group of people or whoever yep. is attending and you're talking about these things. Are you talking freely or are you talking in the sense of, do you pretty much make up your words before you it's start?
1: It's totally scripted.
2: It's totally scripted. Okay.
1: Yeah. And um, I have the script here, actually. I recently. Mm-hmm finished to edit it, and um, yeah, I thought I should have it just in case I want to... Refer but you to memorize something. it, or you... Yeah, I memorize it. Um, at the end of the performance, I will read a recite a poem from John Jorno, some American poet who died recently, or a year ago. And I really like that he says when, when he performs his poetry, he always memorizes it, because when he's reciting it, it doesn't come from this relationship of like eyes to paper but it's really like coming from the inside of him outwards. So there's a certain, you can see like in a mystical way, like a kind of energy that's pouring out of him directly to the listener. And I think that I feel the same when I memorize it. I feel like I'm in much more direct relationship with uh, the people who are there. I can play with it sometimes. Sometimes if I've performed it a few times in repetition... And I'm so comfortable with the words that I can start to play and change, add something, remove something, just feel feel it a bit in the moment, but um I really need that script to to um keep me from just rambling and going and like forgetting something that's essential, or like sometimes I want like very specific phrases or it's it's a bit can be like poetry as well that I want to to include that like i i realized later one small word joke that i want to add into it like uh, i'm so the performance as i said before is called i and i which is uh coming from rasta philosophy which is not you and me but i and i that we are equal that we are i and i within the greater i which is a kind of totality or god you could say and uh the, in the Rasta ling- linguistic um, zone or right their way that they play with words they take away use and replace them with I so instead of university it's i university. Mm-hmm. and um, I was thinking then like um, at one point to put in the, the sentence it's like Ubuntu except it's Ubuntu 1 so it's like, um, I don't know if you know Ubuntu, it's, a, um, kind of, a general or pan, not exactly pan-African, but I think it comes from South Africa and, uh, Desmond Tutu was one of the major proponents or creators of it. And it's a philosophy of, of oneness, of total, uh, total being together as one and, um, but I think it's so funny that in the word ubuntu you have the number two so it would only make sense actually it should be ubuntu one anyway these kind of dumb jokes maybe i'll forget them if i don't script them and i really like having dumb jokes they're like little gifts that i that i feel like i can plant within the story that some people maybe notice some people don't may you say
2: something a bit uh, uh, It's. It, because we talked about this, especially this sculpture, the last time, yeah. and you, you explained to me this I and I thing. Mm-hmm. And if I remember it right, you said it's uh, these these figures that you make out of them, more or less. At least that's how I understood it. It's it's like a um, brother or sister, or two brothers or whatever, two sisters, and they they found this company, and it's an ice cream company, and it's called I and Ice Cream. Yeah, and. And I was thinking so much about this since then. If I find it entirely stupid, or very intelligent, or what it is about, because you you're very serious on some things. You you read a lot of things, and then you come with these really stupid jokes sometimes in between, and it makes it really funny also. And but it's it's like a stumble stone. You you stand there and you like, does he mean it seriously? What? what so it's, yeah. it's really funny, <laughs> and you feel like you are playing with that sometimes. Yeah,
1: I mean, for me, stupidity is very important. Yeah, and to make I, dumb I don't mean jokes it mean. that yes, are, yeah, but I, I feel that. sometimes just to make a dumb joke or a wordplay can be the start of something profound. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, like I a really good it. story. It's, it's for me, it's like a really good starting point because I already have something that gives me some joy or some pleasure, and I can find something profound in it. But I can also just enjoy it as a joke if I don't find something profound in it. But for the I and ice cream, I think that there's uh, also something profound in the story. And like... When Maybe I have to explain this a little oh, bit yeah, better. Okay. Because I have to... So this sculpture, <laughs> it's, it's in Amsterdam in the east of the city. Uh, and um, the uh, Teichelberg Plain. There's some, uh, some letters before that. But it's this plain in the area near Kanesem Island... It's a former Docklands that was made in the 19th century as an expansion of the Dutch colonial and their uh, naval uh, uh, trading. They built this area because they turned uh, the area where the boats were before into Central Station. And then this area eventually became housing in the 80s and 90s. you know the area I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of... One of these neighborhood parts that used to be a, a dock, the very end of it stand these sculptures looking out at the water. It was made in two thousand one yeah, and in real life they're much bigger yeah they're like they're like the figures are a little bit bigger than the height of a person, but the table and chairs are reduced to eighty eight percent of normal size, which is mark Maunder's thing about like trying to make a sculpture become like a photograph where you, you, are, you find it familiar, but also having distance. It's also goes similar to what uh, Sheng is talking about as well. And he also thinks about it relating to photograph uh, because he puts the two figures that are almost identical and the intersecting buckets, which is basically, he wants to show like two moments in time of the same thing. So it's like the camera, Rotated a little bit and, and took a picture again, but then this translated into sculptures. This is how monders explains the, the sculpture, but for me when when I uh, Saw this sculpture and I and I thought how can I use this to tell a story? Um, four years ago I was invited to do a performance in the east of Amsterdam where I was living by Sara Janini, a curator who also lives in the east And it was a project called Heterotropics. And it was looking at the history of the Dutch colonial enterprise relating to the present, especially with the names of streets. And she invited different people to make works dealing with that in public space. So I made a performance. And the first part of the performance was at this sculpture. And the first thing I noticed about this sculpture is the hands of the figures, that there are these weird scoops. They have a thumb and then they have a scoop. And, and I immediately thought about ice cream scoops. So, this was like the, the initial associative leap. And then I start to imagine okay, maybe this sculpture located where the ships would go on colonial voyages is a monument to people who were doing that. And then, what would it mean to be an ice cream colonist? And then I start to research the history of the ice trade. Because it was a real trade from the 19th century of harvesting ice in the north of uh, the earth, in like Canada area, and then bringing them on big boats to the Caribbean or to southern United States to cool meats and fish and whatever. So what if these, uh, these siblings, brother and sister, what if they were uh, involved in the ice trade, but then they, they decided to pivot their business to making ice cream? They met some gelato chef who showed them how to make ice cream, and it like blew their minds and like, wow, we're transporting ice, but we could actually increase our profits by turning some of this ice into ice cream, and then we can spread ice cream around the world and make a huge profit and so the, yeah so I tell this story about them and about how they meet this um, and of a small tribe on a tiny island in the Caribbean, because they are on a search to get spices and sugar to make their ice cream, because you need to have the ice cream taste good. And they, and they meet this island uh, leader, and this leader is basically representing uh, current Rastafarian ideas. And he's explaining to them the concept of "I and "I." And they are misunderstanding this concept from a kind of selfish perspective saying like, well, if I make ice cream for other eyes, then I will become richer and the eyes of the Netherlands will grow. So it's like, oh wow, thank you for for informing me of this great philosophy that actually just like, I turned it to be meaning about how I can become rich by exploiting your people, by forcing you into labor to harvest and produce the spices for me to make ice cream. And uh, in exchange, I'll give you ice cream because uh, who doesn't love ice cream? So this is kind of the basis of the, the story, the first part of the story. And then and I reveal that they created this company of I and Ice Cream that was like the biggest ice cream company in the world. And then, and then I start to look into the, the sculpture, the specifics of the sculpture. I mean, earlier I talked about the buckets that are intersecting as being a kind of motif of I and I that these two circles overlap each other to produce this shape in the middle, which also coincidentally is the shape of an eye, of a eye that you look through. And then I, I speak about how they're standing on top of a table. And I, and I think like, so they're not, they're not standing under the table, so they're not understanding, they're standing over, they're overstanding. And actually the overstanding was what led me to Rasta, Because when I Google searched the term overstanding, I learned that this is a term in the Rastafarian language. And that's when I started reading about Rastafarian ideas. Sorry for this Mm long-winded rambling story, but like... So then, yeah, I can start to imagine, Well, what do I think overstanding means to me and in the context of this story? And I was thinking it's kind of like assuming that you know better than what someone thinks they know themselves. So like... We know these people will enjoy ice cream, but they haven't even tried ice cream. It's like this this um, this basic um, concept is very core to a kind of imperialistic mindset. It's about what you what you overstand the other. It's the same for um, proselytizing. So I know better that you should become a Christian then you know because you don't know Christianity. You don't know that you can be saved. And uh, then I start to talk about that and talk about that as an act of assumption. And I start looking into the meaning of the word assumption, like the assumption of the Virgin Mary. So to assume, in English we make this joke, is to make an ass out of you and me. (laughs) But to assume is also to rise up. So there's something both holy and stupid about that. And then I talk about how there's an empty chair. And then the etymology of the word chair is the same as cathedral. So, I mean, I could go on further. Like The the conclusion kind of in that whole performance, I'm talking about like sitting down, rising up, shooting into outer space. And how outer space, the final frontier, is like the ultimate colonial project. Because that's where the heavens are. And and that's where we don't know what happens to us when we die. But religion has proclaimed to know what happens when we die. So they've overstood afterlife. They've claimed to know what will happen to you. And that's that's amazing. I mean, that's so powerful.
0: And, and that's yeah. precisely something you you don't do. Like in the beginning of our conversation, you said, like, you know, there there is a power I I... I understood mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, in in telling stories about objects, um, but you use the power instead of as Olaf also mentioned. You don't like try to control the interpretation or the connotation everything brings up. You tell, but you do like sort of you know direct people towards certain things. Um, and I was wondering uh, something else. What about the um, the eyes of the figures we right. see, because there is uh, the title, Eye and Eye, and obviously there is a pun, uh, maybe not intended, but I guess so still, um, um, that comes up when we look at the figures, because these figures both have one eye, but the originals don't, they have two eyes. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me a little bit?
1: Sure, about that. yeah, so that's the one change besides it being smaller and made out of wood that I made from the original sculpture of Mark Maunders. And um, I, I often like to make a small change when I'm co- copying a work because I like the idea that it, I make it my own and that I also am doing a small thing to emphasize the story that I want to tell. Like I was describing earlier, like, oh, I can cut something. That emphasize or paints in color. So by by removing the eyes, I'm emphasizing that they are not the same. First of all, because one of them has a left eye, one of them has a right eye. So the sculptures are copies, but they're actually different. When they when they would blend into each other, then they would be a figure with two eyes. So they need each other to have two eyes. The singularity um, is emphasized with their single eye, and then. It also becomes an echo at the end of the performance, when we're in the tea house. Then I have this sculpture here, which is a daruma, which is this Japanese doll where you you paint in the eyes. So it starts with no eyes, and then you come up with a goal that you want to accomplish, and then you paint in one eye. And when you accomplish the goal, you paint in the second eye. And Sara Janini, the curator who invited me for that original performance, she told me she has a, a daruma and she painted in one of the eyes, but then she forgot her goal. So she just her has second this, goal. Yeah. Or... Well no, because the first eye is, is you paint when you, you come up with your goal. Right. Okay. You decide yeah, yeah, your goal. Yeah. <laughs> and when you accomplish it, you paint the second eye in. So it's a kind of motivation. Yeah. You look at the thing and the thing reminds you yeah. I should complete that goal that I made. But she forgot what, what her goal was. So now the object reminds her that she forgot. Or perhaps it reminds her that she she doesn't have a goal. Or maybe it's liberating. You don't need to have a goal. You can just be. Maybe you'll accomplish all kinds of things that you don't expect. But this, this painting in the eyes, it's also coming from um, early Buddhist iconographic painting traditions. That the eyes are the last thing that would be painted in because it's the moment of waking up the soul that's inside of the, the object, as I said earlier. And sometimes they would do ceremonies where they'd have a monk present when the person was painting in the eyes. Sometimes the person who's painting in the eyes would not look while doing it. They would close their own eyes so that when they finished painting the eyes, they would open their eyes and see the thing alive. So this is like this, this is somehow a crucial moment of the thing waking up. And for it to be stuck in the situation of one eye, and one no eye, it's, it's in between being awake and being asleep. And so, so what's that? Is that a coma or is that? I mean, I think it's, it's like where we are as people. We have things that we would like to see change in the world. Goals we want to accomplish or ways that we could uh, improve things. Or become enlightened in whatever way we think, whether that's about uh, injustice, uh, racial or sexual injustice or religious injustice. I mean, it's a cliche like to become woke. But like here it's half woke. And perhaps it's a better representation of, of where we are, and it, it has a motivation in it, which is we still want to become awake. Maybe we will always want to become awake because we will never fully accomplish our goals, because maybe we will have a new goal that comes. So this this situation I find fascinating, and it's kind of a one of the core themes that I want to get to within that within the performance of I and I is like we want to wake up, but we're stuck, we're in between, but we're we're trying. And bodhisattvas are trying to become Buddha. They're trying, and Buddha, I mean, the word Buddha is to become awoken. That's the meaning of so that's the word. Is
0: that something you, you, you want to do with your work? I mean, you so you speak about motivation, and I wonder, um, I think that's a, sort of a nice way to approach what, what are you doing in general? Like, what is your motivation? And I see that in your work, there is both something very funny, very uh, even hilarious sometimes, mm-hmm. Uh, something very banal, but also something political. You mentioned in the very beginning, uh, graduating from your design background, you were like, you realized how bizarre it seems to be to create new objects. And you know, you made this performance, which sort of um, comments the colonial history of the Netherlands. So there's, as Olaf also earlier mentioned, something very, very serious and something very funny. And I don't know. I don't know if that brings together a question about motivation. But I wonder what your motivation is. Like, what, what do you want to do? What drives you towards making that new performance every time?
1: Definitely the. Political is is very important, although I'm not I don't know if I'm directly um, always directly touching on it in a way that can be seen as like um, giving us something concrete to work with. let's say like it's not activism um, but it's reflecting on these deep questions that politics is also dealing with and we are dealing with as societies. I, I, I think it's important to think about these things and, and I want to think about them, but perhaps by using humor, by using poetic uh, metaphors and, and uh, abstract imagery, I can shift the way that we are looking at things. We, we often get stuck into certain ways that we see, things in the world whether it's history or current issues and perhaps uh, one motivation is to kind of shift that to see our situation also like a material that we can play with and 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 rethink and um, it's not to necessarily solve the problem but it's to bring an attention to it in 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 one way and
0: um, also because it has your attention as well or gained your attention in a way
1: yeah, and it's also like I, I notice things over time. I mean, this performance is from four years ago, so I've had a lot of time to think about it. And what I'm reading and what I'm learning, I'm seeing a relationship to other things that I've learned or that I've created. And that, that those different points, they, they have a tendency to connect to each other. I mean, it's kind of human psychosis that we want to connect everything. But, like, I'm really trying delicately to to build a constellation of things that connect to each other. Because when we connect things to each other, we change the way that we see both of those things. So, when I carve away the eyes, I'm also referencing this sculpture that they are half awake and half asleep. And so, I'm, I'm... changing the way that we look at that thing and perhaps changing the way that we look at ourselves and the performance ultimately is all about ourselves as individuals and how we relate to others in the world and it's about how we understand life and death and the afterlife and truth Um,
0: That's something I like very much about your work is that you speak of acti- activating the objects in a way, but also it activates the the people, the listeners, the viewers of your performances in a very uh, very uh, direct way, I guess. And also there there was a there was a work I saw on your website. I didn't know um, you created objects, and people could take one of the objects along in the exhibition. It was very 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 physical and very directly um but that's nice how um can people still like sign up for the performance you're going to do or like how does it work
1: well wh- um hopefully in the beginning of january i'll start to install everything there and uh, go for fort and then i'll make an online sign up portal and, uh, and it will be very limited, I guess. Yeah, even before COVID. So the, the it was supposed to happen in April, actually. So even in February, we were planning it and I wanted it to be six people each time and I would do the performance 25 or 30 times, especially because the, the tea house space, you can't fit more than six people inside of there. So but now because of COVID, maybe it will be even smaller, two or three people per time. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I still have to figure out how how to do it practically, but yeah, then I'll send it out, and you can find it. Hopefully, we can uh, share it with the level five, and uh, people can can see it there. Um, one thing, just to say, the work you mentioned, something to hold on to, it's a collaboration yep. with Rosa Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. and uh, it's also re- reflects a lot on her her work in the way that she she really likes to create situations of interacting with objects. Like, I think. She's really great inspiration for me and also a really good friend. And um, in 2010, I, I or 2011, 2010, I showed a work of hers called Object, which was a, a sculpture and the idea is that you carry it around with you all the time. And uh, you keep it in your bag and then you can show it to other people. So, so the exhibition of that work is done by one person who's assigned to show that work. She's shown similar works like that. In, Institutions where, like, the guards who are working there would keep it in their pocket. So, like, she's definitely the one who influenced that um, that way of thinking about it. And then me, like, talking with her, we we came up with this idea of how we could place something like that within the experience for audience who would go to uh, art center, and then they would be able to carry one of these sculptures throughout the exhibition space. So that thing becomes something that gives them comfort or they look at it and then they look at the other things and maybe they see a relationship and it changes how they how they see it again. That's like what I spoke about when you asked me about motivation, like how things change the way that we see other things. And there's one other thing I want to say because I know I'm going to keep her handling <laughs> but like um, one thing I feel like it's really core and like you said it a little bit at some point you were saying something about melting and uh, um, I like this metaphor that works often, especially historical works in museums, become like ice. They become frozen, like we decide the meaning and they're stuck like that forever. And I'm really interested in melting and cracking that ice to say, like, things are not frozen. again, There are meanings for those things. There's reasons why they were made in histories. But we can melt those things, like the Mark Mondor sculpture, and we can appropriate them and tell whatever story you want to tell using that thing. And that makes that thing alive. And I think that's also a core motivation. And perhaps that we can see that idea as um, something that can be relating in politics or how we relate to anything in the world. I mean, like in the talk with Batsheva, we were talking about Judaism, and I talked a lot about growing up in reconstructionism, which was all about like looking at the religion from a contemporary viewpoint and reconstructing things to make sense to how we live today. And I think for me, like reconstruction as a term or as an ideology, it's really fascinating. It's super important. I think that's what we're all talking about when we're talking about like abolishing the police or defunding the police it's really like we want to reconstruct these things these systems that are around us to make sense to how we are and to take away the things that have been oppressive and and wrong about them so like there's something that I'm trying to liberate in how we think about meaning and uh, feeling stuck in the way that things should be but I, it's dangerous, too, because it's the same thing that the uh, QAnon conspiracy theorists are doing. They're taking random events and putting the Q sauce on it, so... But it's also... Uh,
0: it, it's something we have to do and keep on... We have to keep on doing that thing. And even though creating narratives and creating uh, reality and creating truth, in a way, it's also, as you say, dangerous, and it's being done in a, in a way that I guess m- a lot of us disagree with. If you look at far right wing uh, populism, for example, but um, yeah, it's. Um,
2: I I don't want to defend you because it's unnecessary to defend this point. But if you say that, I understand what you mean by this parallel between like. this constructing narratives and and like uh, uh, the evil side of it in the sense of QAnon or whatever but um, I think the way you work is very very strong but at the same time it's delicate and uh, I would rather describe it as you, you make knots in strings where sometimes people didn't even know that the strings existed before like if we go back to the, the Mendes sculpture if you if you connect the the colonial history let's put it on globe horizontal east west but also i think hardly anybody knows this way between norway and italy was in europe the main route for ice and um, because you were talking about the states and caribbean and so on but i think italy is the most important country for that so and you bring this together with this playfulness so then you make a knot into things and in present culture and and, but it always remains very delicate to me at the same time and somewhere there I would say it has a kind of beauty to it which the things that we might be afraid of like conspiracy things they don't have a beauty to it I think
1: that I'm also it's uh, I think what it's really important for me is also that I'm deconstructing I'm telling a new narrative but I'm also showing you that I'm doing that yeah there's exactly. a self awareness yeah. that it's that I'm constructing something that and you you can believe my truth, but know that I've created that truth,
2: but maybe that's solving this paradox because you said, no, I don't want to give away all the control I said you, you you don't keep control, you said, yeah, but it's well important, but it's exactly because you control what you're doing, but you're also showing the way how you do it, which gives the listener, the viewer, whoever, the people who are attending a performance. The, uh, the power, the possibility to, to do a reconstruction of something the same way they, you do it, or to understand what you're actually doing. Yep. So, there's so many questions I still have, yeah. but I think we are more than an hour already. Somebody's yeah. cutting wood I d- outside.
0: I just wanted to end this, with you know. a question that <laughs> normally we should probably pose at the beginning, and we very often forget, yeah. but um, uh, we started talking about the sauna you made once, and I remember you had an interview with someone in the sauna and during that interview you said that you found out you're allergic to cold and I was oh. just wondering how are you doing actually now it's so
1: cold outside? Really not well, like, I mean, I'm doing fine but like, it's really weird, I don't understand what's wrong with me. Actually, Kevin and Perry were there when I first noticed this was really a problem. I was in, in Chicago, we met up with them at a beach and I was just playing in the water with him and suddenly I was like I need to get out of this water now otherwise I'm gonna pass out and then I like stumbled to the sand and collapsed and they had to call an ambulance and it was like a whole thing and I had no idea what's going on but somehow when I, my body gets cold it turns red maybe the blood transfers in a weird way it's called urticaria it's a kind of uh, hives or something I really don't understand what's wrong with me so, like, uh, so it's true, it wasn't a joke. Yeah, no, it's not a joke, and it's really like weird. It's uh, it's it's not a normal thing. It's it like, doesn't
0: happen also, uh, like when you're outside or with yeah, water or it's
1: anytime I'm experiencing cold. So, it's not dangerous if probably like the core of my body is warm, but I start itching. Like, even now, my legs are itching, and it's not even that cold. So, when I'm outside, my whole body is like itching it's horrible <laughs> but it's okay if i'm biking it's better because then i'm uh, a lot of sweating parking. and getting warm you know but yeah what a terrible thing because i love swimming i love going to the beach and going in the water but now i have to be really careful like i'll go swim for a few minutes to check how i'm doing is the sauna still there the sauna is here in Brussels and okay. uh hopefully soon it'll be in the model in the at the Hector Litre. Ah oh, yeah. Uh, and okay. they proposed to bring it there and uh yeah, I don't know. So I thought maybe maybe it's because of experiencing so much warmth that I transformed my body to not no longer be able to handle <laughs> the cold. That's what I was saying in the interview. I was just j- joking but really serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Well,
0: It's so, probably a nice uh nice point to to stop
2: yeah maybe we ended with it because i mean really there's sound outside and there's so many things <laughs> going on somebody's reconstructing level five outside yeah um yeah thank you very thank very much thank David. you so much really for nice. these
1: thoughtful questions it's really like got me to think a lot about the deeper connections between things and like be able to kind of to vocalize it and uh, yeah so thanks so much very inspiring listening to yeah thank you thank you thank you, you. This is radio. Level five. Yeah. Level five.